Hey everyone, this is Ben Norton, and you are listening to Rules Based Disorder. As always, anyone who wants to join the chat, feel free to join the queue, and I'll respond to any questions that people have. Just while I'm waiting for people to join and ask questions, I'll, I'm going to talk about a few things happening this week. First of all, I wanted to begin discussing how the euro, for the first time in 20 years, has dropped so much in value that it's now basically equal to the U.S. dollar. We've seen in the past several years, the euro has constantly depreciated. And of course, a big reason behind this is the Western sanctions on Russia and the very high cost of energy in Europe. But what's incredible is if you look at a graph of the exchange rate between the euro and the U.S. dollar, back in 2008, it was about 1.6 euros to every dollar. So much, much more valuable. And then, of course, in the 2008 crash, the value of the euro dropped. But it did recover. And as recently as 2011, the euro was 1.5 to the U.S. dollar. I remember... I, the last time I was in Europe, it actually was a long time ago. I think it was 2014. And yeah, looking at the graph here, it was about 1.4 euro to every dollar. And since 2014, it's been declining. And what happened in 2014? The US sponsored coup in Ukraine, which led to a, a, of course, a violent overthrow of Ukraine's elected government, and then the installation of a pro-Western puppet regime, and then sanctions on Russia. And ever since those sanctions on Russia in 2014, the euro has been hurt, and it looks like there's no indication that it's going to go back in any way. And economist Michael Hudson has been warning about this very clearly in the interviews that I've done with him, and, and he his warning is he's saying, look, Europe is going to become an economic dead zone. And we can see this now where the price of energy has skyrocketed so much because Europe is so dead set on boycotting any Russian energy, which means that European industry is completely uncompetitive. And Michael Hudson, in the most recent interview I did with him, which you can find at multipolarisa.com, he, I think, correctly argued that this means that Europe will never be able to compete with Asia. And this is, this is the end of Europe's economic hegemony. And we can just see it right before us with the constant depreciation of the euro. And I should say that the euro is now at the, is at the same level as the US dollar, but there are a lot of indications that it's going to keep dropping. And of course, the US dollar, it is one of the reasons it maintains so consistent in terms of its value is a lot of countries around the world stu still do their trade in dollars. And a lot of countries around the world still sell their oil and other commodities in dollars. Now, that's not really true for Europe. So it's really shocking to see Europe committing economic suicide just out in the open for the entire world to see and how little introspection there is about that, how little criticism there is from European leaders. And we now see many reports warning of an, up, an, an upcoming depression. In fact, 
there was just a report from the Bank of England saying that there's going to be a depression soon. So when, when we say that Europe is committing economic suicide on behalf of this Western financial war and economic war on Russia, it's not hyperbolic. It's, it's really shocking to see. But um, so anyone who f- wants to join the chat, please feel free to join um, anytime you want. I'm going to just briefly, I'll talk about another issue while I'm waiting for someone to join the chat. But I, I just published an article at multipolarisa.com about Sri Lanka. And there's been a lot of coverage of this in the past few days in, in international media. And I think it's just worth talking about it for a second because the, the situation is not being well understood. And related to this crisis I was just talking about in Europe, we're seeing a similar economic crisis around the world that has been made so much worse by this Western economic warfare against Russia. Of course, Russia is one of the world's leading producers of oil, gas, wheat, and fertilizer, all things that are very necessary for all countries on Earth. Pretty much every country has wheat as a staple of their diet. Every country needs oil and gas, obviously. And fertilizer is extremely important to grow food. So it's not even just that the U.S. is pressuring countries not to buy Russian wheat, including the U.S. government is pressuring African nations that are consistently food insecure not to buy wheat from Russia. But fertilizer is obviously just as important. And Russia is one of the world's leading fertilizers, producers of fertilizers. Now it's unable to send a lot of that fertilizer to Europe. So there are many reports that in the upcoming harvests, food production in Europe is going to be much smaller, which means another increase in global food prices. And one of the countries that has been economically hit very hard by this is Sri Lanka. And there are a lot of reports warning that the economic crisis in Sri Lanka is kind of the beginning of this wave of economic crises we're going to see largely in the global south in response to these large rates of inflation, in response to the shortage of certain goods. And it's also compounded by the fact that Sri Lanka is very heavily indebted, although a lot of countries are heavily indebted, not just in the global south. There is a lot of foreign debt held by pretty much every country, most countries on earth. And the question is, can that debt be renegotiated? Can that debt be forgiven? Of course, the the example of Sri Lanka is is really it really reflects this debt trap, the actual debt trap strategy carried out by the West. And I, I showed this in this this report I published about how the vast majority of Sri Lanka's debt is held by Western financial institutions, Japan and India, not by China. Even though a lot of Western media outlets and the U.S. government are, are blaming China for the crisis in Sri Lanka, but it's a very instructive case when you look at Sri Lanka has had 16 IMF structural adjustment programs, 16 IMF bailouts. That is incredible. And there are a lot of countries in the global south that have had very similar histories. And clearly those IMF bailouts aren't working. The structural adjustment programs don't work. And the IMF itself were rather economists at the IMF. A few years ago, they published 
a study admitting that neoliberalism has failed to lead to economic growth. And obviously it has made, made inequality significantly worse. But one of the arguments used by the Chicago boy neoliberal economist is that, well, if you implement these neoliberal policies like cutting the minimum wage, cutting pensions, cutting healthcare spending, cutting education spending, cutting taxes on corporations, if you implement these neoliberal policies, if you privatize your state assets, at the very least, the economy will grow. That's, of course, the argument they use. But even major IMF economists admitted this, this was either 2015 or 2016. I remember writing an article about it back then. They admitted that neoliberalism was oversold, as they put it. Neoliberalism oversold was the title of this report. And they acknowledged that it actually doesn't lead to the growth of the economy. And obviously it guts the society. And we've seen that, that there are so many cases of this. And the only way that these countries can economically stay afloat is just from getting more and more loans from the IMF. And that's exactly how the Sri Lankan economy has functioned. And the IMF didn't give the, the Sri Lanka, give the Sri Lankan government a bailout. There were in May, Sri Lanka defaulted on its debt. And in June, there were discussions between the Sri Lankan government and the IMF, and they did not come to an agreement, which would have been the 17th bailout. And then the government collapsed. That has been the model for decades. That's also the, the model in Pakistan, where they have this neoliberal economic model. And the only way that they, the country stays economically solvent is just constant IMF bailouts and structural adjustment programs. And that's all exploding now. It's, it's, a, it's a model that was always a scam. And I think this is the beginning of the explosion of this model. And of course, the West attempt to, the Western attempt to blame China is complete projection. I mean, it's, it's laughable. Again, China only owns 10% of Sri Lanka's foreign debt. Whereas the Western and the US and European banks and vulture funds own nearly 50%. They own 47%, including BlackRock, which has become like a landlord for thousands and thousands of people across the US as it gobbles up real estate. I mean, we're seeing the explosion of this economic model in real time. So I actually do think that what's going on in Sri Lanka, I, I think it is true that it is the beginning of this wave of economic crises we're going to see, especially in the global south, which is, of course, very tragic because people in the global south have suffered the most from these policies. But I think it is also very related to what we're seeing right now in Europe and the economic implosion in Europe the collapse of the euro, it's, we really are heading for very difficult times. And I know in all these episodes, every time I'm here and I have chats with people, it's, they're very dark and very pessimistic, but I think we should also be realistic and see where things are heading. And it does look like it's going to be economic chaos in the upcoming years. But I just wanted to begin talking about that. So I'm going to take the first question now from Sean Atkinson. Go ahead, Sean. Okay, there we go. Um, hey, hi there, Ben. Um, great to, to hear you again. And let's see, two questions. I'll try to be brief about them. I, 
I'm pretty, I'm pretty amazed. I remember how, for example, Spain um, had no problem when there was a changing government and uh, the right wing lost the elections. The uh, the incoming government went right ahead and pulled out of Iraq. We were one of the coalition of the willing, and George W. Bush's we, I mean, Spain was uh, was one of the coalition of the willing, and George W. Bush's invasion of Iraq. And uh, as soon as the government changed, they left. I mean, they, I think they were out in you know two months or less, maybe two weeks. I forget exactly, but briefly. Um, however, now uh, entire all of Europe is completely subservient, and it just is really heartbreaking, mind blowing to see uh, you know the complete lack of agency that that foreign countries seem to have, and um, it's I guess people would rather. You know whether it's that or whether many countries, for example, are are subject to the euro, um, as you've, you know, as, as guests have mentioned in your in your show before. Uh, the euro is a great way for Germany to keep all other economies bound to it in a in a servile position, especially the so-called pigs. Um, it's it's amazing, but it, it seems that a big portion of the PMC would rather lose with the winners. If they at least get, you know, if they at least are able to to maintain appearances, so you know that, you know the the managerial class of Spain would you know would be happy to see Spain just go to the gutter. Um, Germany, same thing. I mean, I don't know what they're going to do in in the fall when they are really going to need gas to to heat their homes. Um, I think everybody's watching this. You know, I mean, how how is it possible that that from that that allied countries are, you know, have enough agency to to leave Iraq, you know, if they so deem it so, if their if their population votes, you know, against the war as they did, what is it, 15 years ago? But now, uh, Germany doesn't even have the agency to to tell the U.S. to go screw itself and uh, and continue to buy oil, which it needs to keep its people from freezing. Well, I think there? I hope so. I think I've taken yeah. that time. No, no, no. Great comments. No rush. You, you, hit, you hit the nail on the head. And what's so frustrating about it is that I remember back when the Partido Popular was defeated and yeah. PSOE came back and they were portraying themselves as like the anti-war voices. But what's sad is, I mean, they're in power right now. PSOE is yeah. in power. And Pedro Sanchez, just he just put out the red, the red carpet for NATO and welcomed all these warmongers. And and he announced that Spain is going to double its military budget in the next seven years. Double the military budget. So, I mean, right now it's around 12, 13 billion euro a year. And he said it's going to be over 24 billion. So, so much for pretending to be the anti-war party. It's really sad. And, of course, I don't think this is necessarily a new policy. We've seen a lot of these European governments have been very subservient to Washington Maybe France has always been an exception because there's this kind of independent nationalist streak going back to de Gaulle, who, you know, withdrew from NATO and and at least, uh, you know, Mitterrand pretended to be independent, but he wasn't really. So I, I think, you know, it's it's it does make sense to say that a lot of like the the more um, old school right wing leaders like Sarkozy, who brought France back into NATO and the Partido Popular in Spain, um they definitely were seen as like the more pro-U.S. wing. But it is true, I think, especially since the war with the 
the new Cold War with Russia has heated up in the past few years, that even a lot of the like center left forces in Europe that at least used to be pretend, at least used to pretend to be independent of right. the U.S., have all become very pro Washington. And and Germany's the worst case. I mean, like the the German Green Party is it gives Green parties around the world such a bad name. It is embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, it is extremely pro war. It is extremely pro U.S. It's completely neoliberal and. What's so crazy is we see that what what's really frustrating to me is that even a lot of the unions who understand like the German unions, which are still pretty powerful and they are supposed to be a base for the SPD. I mean, wh where are they? Like, why are they not saying these crazy policies are destroying our economy and preventing us from being able to feed our houses? That's what's sad yeah. to me is seeing that. In the U.S., obviously, labor unions are very weak, but in certain parts of Europe, especially Germany and France, they are powerful, and I don't see them doing anything to oppose this war that is destroying their economy. Well, I guess maybe the, the secret services of each country have penetrated their unions as much as our secret services you know, have penetrated ours. Well, I think that's certainly an element, but I also think it's willing. There's just a lot of leadership of these unions that are that represent the, the more like centrist elements of the political parties, and you know, uh, obviously Germany has on paper supposedly has a center-left government right now, but it's governing exactly the same as Angela Merkel. And you know, Angela Merkel was sometimes portrayed as like a left-wing leader, which is absurd. I think because you know she had this policy of like supporting refugees, so so everything. In Europe, like in the U.S., they have tried to portray politics as like a culture battle instead of focusing on like economic policy and foreign policy. So Angela Merkel, of course, is from the Christian Democratic Union, which is a center-right party. And we've now seen that Schultz has governed exactly the same. And I think it's a lot of the, the union leadership. I mean, sure, they've been infiltrated, but I also think more it's just, it's just political opportunism. They're just going along with the political leadership of these parties that... They, they have, they truly have no alternative. It's just doubling down on exactly what destroyed all these political parties. I mean, think about Francois Hollande. Like the Socialist Party was so devastated under Hollande in France that it barely, it almost did not reach the threshold necessary to, to enter parliament in the elections. Like it's come almost devastated. It's almost done as a party. And that's exactly what Schultz is doing right now. In Germany, that's what all these, and that's of course what Sanchez is doing. Like all these Absolutely. parties are just being driven into the ground. It's it's crazy. Completely, and and now the the secret is out. I mean, back in the eighties, by the way, it was Pessoa who put who brought Spain into the NATO. Ah, that's Which true. Yeah, hard to believe. Um, well, well, at, you know what's time, you know what's kind of crazy about that is the whole like um the the transition after. You know, um, after Franco died and then, uh, uh, and then, um, what, what do they call Spain's first, uh, El Primer Cosmonauto, uh, El, uh, <laughs> Car Carrero, Carreros Blanco, right? Yeah, Carreros Carrero. Blanco. Yeah. Who was blown up by ETA. Well, you, you know what's weird about that is there's a weird story about, his first name was Carreros Spanish Blanco, right? Yeah. El Primer Cosmonauto. Carrero Blanco. Yeah. Yeah. So what's weird about that is that, 
Um, I've, I've heard speculation that like NATO and like Operation Gladio were partially, they, they were either behind or allowed that assassination by ETA because he was an obstacle to putting Spain into NATO because everyone knew that he was going to take over after Franco. So what's really crazy about that whole transition period between 75 and 81 is speaking of these, you know, secret intelligence services is how they kind of like guided Spain in the direction of integrating into NATO and becoming part of this transatlantic bloc. So any independence that, that Spain really had, obviously, I mean, it was a horrible fascist dictatorship, but after that, it just became completely just like a pawn of Washington. Has Spain ever really had an independent policy? It's really sad between a fascist dictatorship from 39 until 75, and then just becoming that like a Washington proxy after that. And, and of course, being devastated by the Eurozone and just like being forced to suffer under permanent austerity with high rates of unemployment. I, I actually feel pretty bad for Spain, honestly. Like obviously in Latin America, Spain is not popular considering a lot of what's done historically. But, you know, right. modern, modern Spanish history is, is pretty sad as well. <laughs> it's, it's hard to believe. I do have another question, but I think I'll wait till the other, there's an, uh, there are more callers, so I'll hold if it's okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. That's fine. Thank you. I'll go to, uh, Cele, nuestra compañera Argentina, aquí. Cele, ¿cómo está? ¿Todo bien? Hola, sí, todo bien. ¿Y vos? Sí, todo bien. Con calor, aquí en Nicaragua. No, 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 that, that's so unfair. I woke up four degrees today. No, aquí tengo calor. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's cold there right yes, now. And it, it, But, you know how we say, eh, mostrando pan adelante de los pobres? Yeah. That's what you're doing. <laughs> oh, here's no pot. <laughs> I'm freezing. Did you say and it was right it was now, four yeah, degrees? To, at the morning, yes. And it's oh very my wet God. weather. No, it's very wet weather because, of course, there's a lot of much colder. Uh, I mean, it's, Buenos Aires is kind of in the middle of the yeah. country. So south is much colder. Yeah. But here we have something that is called sensación térmica, which is... Uh, yeah, like the, what it feel the temperature feels like. Oh yes, you're in a wet weather also, you know. Yeah, and it's always like, oh, I hate it. Uh, I didn't, I didn't know it gets that cold in the winter, down to four degrees. Yes, yes, around zero in the morning is not that unusual, and and we have these polar waves now that <laughs> I don't know if they're new or what, but yeah, they suck. And it's supposed to be like that, right? Global, this global warming, it goes like both ways, both extremes, like very, very cold or very, very hot. Uh, I, I don't know. Or maybe I'm wrong. I might be wrong about that. But I was listening to you talking about Spain and I remember something. Um I saw very, a little, like a few days ago, I saw an interview with Abreu, uh, Sergio Abreu. He's um, a right-wing, uh, I don't like him. Uh, yeah, from, from, from the seed. From the seed. Seed? Uh, Aladi. Who, who Abreu? Sergio Abreu. 
A Sergio Abreu. Okay. No, I'm sorry. I was thinking of a uh, Abreu, who is the former head of the seed of the o, like the OAS's so-called human rights arm. But that, that's oh, a different Abreu. Where is he from? Brazil. Oh, okay. No, it's, it's a very common last name. Yeah. Uh, he he's he's a former canciller uh, of of Uruguay, and he's from the National Party. And well, he is now the. Um, Secretary General of Aladi. Aladi is the um, Asociación Latinoamericana de Integración. It's a commercial uh, association or something like that that includes all Latin American countries. Uh, and, and it's kind of inclusive in the matter that it doesn't like segregate by ideology. It's uh, Venezuela, Nicaragua, but it's, it's not very really known. And he's directing it now. And you know what he said? I, I mean, I, I'm quoting it. He said it. That Spain is buying uh, wheat from us. Which, if you know that, if you know about European Union rules, that's like not possible at all. And we we don't comply with any of the, I mean, there was this very, very, um, publicized, um, you know, when Bolsonaro and Macri were trying to uh, negotiate with with the European Union to sell from the Mercosur to the European Union, and it wasn't possible. It's, it's like a big mess. I mean, not not anyone can go and sell something in into the European Union. They have so many rules, and apparently they are giving waivers to some countries, kind of secretly. Uh, to buy wheat uh, from Argentina, so it's it's kind of wow. weird because yes, they are like sanctions here, is it? And then okay, you need it. Just it's it's. I mean, he's he might be lying, but I don't think so. I mean, he doesn't have to. He gave it as an example, and it's it's really really it's it's all those things that nobody talks about that. You know, I remember, I think, like, last time that I thought it was very weird and everybody was talking about how how needed was weird because Ukraine and 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 Russia was the bakery of the world or something like that. And we grew up thinking we were <laughs> not the bakery, but Brazil, Argentina, el, el granero del mundo or something like that. And, and prices here went to the roof because of that even more than normal oh but so much more than normal so much more than normal and, and to the point that of course they are they are in order not to pay taxes they are they are <laughs> taking them to to paraguay and they're shipping they're shipping many of the grain from there because here i mean the last time they tried to to they they charge um, during the COVID pandemic, they they put an attacks on high fortunes. I mean, like eighty people. Uh, it's like the most millionaire people in Argentina, mm-hmm. and a few of them moved to Uruguay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Nice, nice. They're nice people. <laughs> <laughs> They're very, very generous. And so, yes, yes. And that's so weird that why, I mean, he's saying it in an interview and nobody's like taking notice. 
And well, I didn't. I hadn't noticed that. I, I'm going to look into that. It's very interesting. I do know that Argentina is one of the world's main producers of wheat, but it's crazy that Spain would be importing wheat from Argentina, considering it's right n- nearby France, and France is one of the top um, producers of wheat in the entire world. So I guess maybe that probably means that France doesn't have enough wheat because obviously, you know, Russia and Ukraine, they are two of the biggest, but actually France produces more wheat than Ukraine. So the fact that Spain is having to go to Latin America for wheat really does show how desperate things are. And if Spain, which is a country still in the the European Union, I mean, if Spain is having to import wheat from Latin America, imagine countries in Africa and and poorer countries in Latin America that are going to have a shortage of wheat. That's scary. That's my point. I, I mean, we are having shortage of wheat because, of course, it's more it's, it's more money to export it. Yeah. We we ended. I mean, at one point we ended up importing meat. So because Argentina imported really meat. Oh my god! Yeah, because ours is really good, so they sell it very expensive, and ah, uh, and then import yeah. bad quality. GMO meat, yeah. It's pathetic. Uh, Yes, and yeah, well, and I'm talking about, I will send you the link if you want to that, to that interview. But it's it's not that interesting. It's just that part when he says that. And uh, yeah, I'm talking about Sri Lanka. It's so weird that you, that I saw the video and here um, the news is completely different. It's, look what is happening to Sri Lanka. Like he, they are like us because they are so similar like us. You know that it's two drops of water. It's the same culture, the same religion, the same size. Everything is just like us. And look what happened to the government. The opposition is is like fueling Sri Lanka as as it is our destiny. It's not longer Venezuela, it's Sri Lanka now. And it's so weird how they use whatever news they can to fuel the, the ideology they need. Uh, that, that's so, that was really, really, really funny to me because they, they didn't mention China at all because they didn't suit their purpose. Their purpose was uh, they, they, the IMF and the, the same things that they, they run out of dollars and, and we ha- we're having problems with energy, which is so weird because we are sitting on top of the, of the, some of the largest energy reserves in the world, but we didn't build the, the, the canyons and had the uh, gasoducts. Yeah, the um, g- uh, gas pipelines. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's that's. But well, nothing. I I wanted to ask you two questions. Mm-hmm. One is, uh, I don't know. I heard. I I looked for it, but I didn't find it. A long time ago, I heard Chomsky. Uh, he was talking about uh, nuclear weapons, and he's and he cited uh, Bay of Pigs, of course, as, as the closest. He was his point was that the U.S. was the most dangerous uh, holder of nuclear weapons, and they were so after Iran and this and that. But the only ones that had used it or were and that were uh, at, at really really close to using them again was the U.S. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, well, they say they are big as that they were so close to use it. And he mentioned Japan, and he said that. Um, uh, and then he continued about how they kept uh, their influence uh, through Okinawa. The same thing you said, and he talked about a coup. This prime minister that I think it was just before Shinzo Abe or something. He talked about. Uh, uh, the U.S. Uh, orchestrated. You know that just before Jinzo Abe, there was another party that was in charge and lasted very, very few years. And maybe, uh, I don't know if you can find out something about that, because it, it could be very interesting. He he talked about that, that prime minister being uh, toppled down, but with a lot of U.S. influence. I'm not entirely sure. I'll have to look into that. Um, I do know that, so since 1955, Japan has almost entirely been run by one party, which is the Liberal Democratic Party, which is a right-wing party. But I do know that very briefly, there was a period between 2010 and 2012 in which the Democratic Party which is, you know, a neoliberal party, a centrist party, but it was a different party, did govern between 2010 and 2012. And I know that they were actually in that time. They were, there was like a, um, there was a prime minister who was replaced and then he came back. So I don't really know exactly what happened, but basically there were three prime ministers in three years. And then after that, the Liberal Democratic Party and Shinzo Abe came. So I should study that. I, I, I don't really know what happened in that period. Oh, I mean, if, if I found it, because Tomsky is kind of a reliable source, I, I don't think he would say that because, I don't know. But to me, isn't he? Yeah, no, for sure he is. I mean, you can agree I, with, that, with ideology or not, but I, I never saw him as someone that would make things up. No, no, no. He's he's quite reliable. I just don't know about that case. I'm going to look into that. No, I thought it was interesting. And the other thing is, it's more of <laughs> and I, I'm, you probably cannot. Uh, there's this movie just, right, that's a Kim Ki-duk movie. Do you know who he is? Who? Kim Ki-duk. No. Well, he's a, a, a Korean uh, director. I really, really like him. He's kind of his movies are kind of strong, but there's this movie called Address Unknown or something uh, that was not my favorite. But uh, he talked about Korea, but about um, a military base in Korea and how this affected. I mean, the movie is about how this affected the people in Korea uh, in a way that I imagine is happens in Okinawa. It's very interesting. It's very devastating. <laughs> it's very sad, but it's it's very interesting. And he's a, an amazing director. I think the only famous one he had all over the world was one called Winter uh, Fall. I don't know. It was Summer and I don't, the the other one Autumn. Uh, but uh, yeah, that that's that's an interesting movie to see how or my, in a country. With, I, I imagine a pretty similar culture, uh, a military base could affect the life of the people surrounding it so much, especially the women. 
Yeah, I mean, there there are really horrible cases of sexual violence against Korean women and Japanese women by these U.S. soldiers. I mean, in Japan, there are still 55,000 U.S. troops. And in Korea, there are 28,000. And I've never been to Korea or Japan, unfortunately. But from what I've heard from, you know, journalists who are friends of mine who have visited and reported on this stuff, I mean, they are very militarized societies. And in, in the case of South Korea and in the case of Japan, but especially in South Korea, when with the last president, Moon Jae-in, who was a liberal, but he was he had a slightly more independent foreign policy, whereas the new president, who's very conservative, is very pro-U.S. But Moon Jae-in, the previous president, he he opposed the deployment of the THAAD anti-missile system, which would have basically made certain small towns in Korea targets if there is ever a war with North Korea. And there were a lot of protests against the U.S. military deploying this THAAD anti-missile system. And there's there are many videos and photos online of Koreans protesting. And of course, it didn't get a lot of coverage in the media. But there definitely is a sentiment in both Japan and Korea. But I, my impression is it's bigger in Korea. There's definitely a stronger like anti-war sentiment and opposition to the U.S. military bases. And you even see this in some of the some of the more mainstream um, filmmakers. Unfortunately, I don't really know um, Kim Kaduk. I'm going to check out his his some of his films. I got oh, I, yes. I, I recommend. I don't know. If, well, I don't know if you like that kind of film, but uh, The Bow, there's a movie that's called The Bow by him. And it's very interesting because he is, uh, he's, Kore he's Korean and he uses Korean actors and he, I mean, he's not like a Korean director that is now filming in the US. Yeah. And, you know, <laughs> it's, it's, so you can really, like, you can really see the culture and the places and he films there and I've very strong movies, but I... Yeah, he's yeah I was going to say there are there are so many good Korean filmmakers these days. And of course, one of the most famous who's, who's won a lot of awards is, is Bong Joon-ho. And people, mm. they know his film Parasite, which won, you know, Oscars. Oh, yeah. and a lot. But he also has a less a less known movie from uh, about 10 years ago, which is called The Host. And mm. that's an interesting movie because it's it's like a monster horror movie, but it's a very blatant metaphor for the U.S. military occupation of Korea. And, I'm, and this isn't spoiling it. I mean, it, because it happens at the beginning, but there's like this monster that they're fighting from the very beginning of the movie. And the monster was created by the U.S. military. And it's obviously a metaphorical representation of how the U.S. military is like this monster that occupies Korea. So, and he's a very mainstream filmmaker. So my feeling is that in South Korea, there actually is much more opposition. There is in Japan, but it seems to be a little more widespread in Korea. Yes, 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 of course. And what I, I think that right now I was thinking where to get it because uh, with all this stream, that I mean, the negative part of Netflix and all this stream is, of course, when you go in one of those those how the platforms you won't find really very i mean you find mostly one or two foreign movies but it's like i don't know here you find mostly argentinians or it's it's because it's not the same you know that right yeah that I know. it's not the same i yeah. mean i try to find a documentary 
about Argentina that I saw in that saw uh, um, an interview. Chris Hedge lived a lot. Of, you know Chris Hedges. Chris yes. Hedges. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he lived a lot of time here. Well, he made an interview about a documentary, and that was in Amazon. And I made my son come to my house. I I, I lured him with food. Uh, to, because he has the Amazon thing and code and everything and I and it wasn't an Argentinian I mean it was about the Argentinian dictatorship but it wasn't in the Argentinian platform and with and with my my thing is that maybe it wasn't legal but there was so many more sites where you can find uh, different movies. You know, before these platforms made it so easy that I, I, it's now really, really difficult. And I think it's so important. Culture is so important. And especially if you cannot travel to, to know other, other countries and what they think and what I mean, of course, in a partial way. But I, I think that cutting culture is kind of the worst thing they can do to people like this, this. It's, it's so much easier to to dominate people when you have as, the less culture they have, right? It's like, I yeah. know, to me, it's, it's, it's important, very important. I agree. I think it's a huge part of U.S. hegemony is cultural imperialism and Hollywood's influence and all of these all of these movies that portray the U.S. military in a very positive light, like all of the superhero movies, all the Marvel movies. Like the, the U.S. flag is featured very prominently. They use like the U.S. flag on like their uniforms, like Captain Marvel. And they all those movies are produced with the U.S. military. And that's definitely a, a huge, significant influence in. And all, all the white saviors. Yeah. Like all those movies were in some country, they are dying and they come one American man and saves the whole town. And <laughs> it's all full of them. But yeah. yes, it's propaganda. But it, it, for I, 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 I felt that with video, with videos, like video clubs and where you can rent and uh, used to, of course, don't, don't exist anymore. But there was a time when uh, you could, th that stopped for a little while in the sense that you could get a lot of other things. I mean, Buenos Aires is a place where you can go to the to cinema and watch uh, I don't know when when I mean now it's not affordable I haven't been to this to the movies from since before the pandemic and uh, you can see European movies we we see subtitles most of our movies are with we, we we are very different in that regard we mm -hmm. we cannot stand tra translations we're very very used to subtitles so you can find European movies, Iranian movies, and things like that. But it's so much difficult to find it, like in in your house or, or yeah, without an intermediary. That that I think it sucks. And the last, the last things I'm going to ask you, and I just don't answer to me because you have other there's other listeners. And the other people, but I want to leave it to you because I've been seeing a lot of, uh, I've been searching a lot of about colonialism and uh, especially in France and in Europe and what remains. And I thought I, I 
I mean, I read a lot of sociology and all of that from before, right? Not, not now, but you know that, that psychoanalysis theory where you repeat, I like, you've been beaten as a child and then you beat someone who then it's beaten and beats their kids and it, it, it kind of, uh, until you stop it or you kind of face that, you, you tend to repeat that from generation to generation. And I was wondering uh, if you think that uh, I'm seeing how far right is and violence and so many gunshots, mass shootings in the U.S., if you think that 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 kind of imperial violent past has anything to do with that. And I think it's a heavy question, (laughs) but uh, I don't know. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if I would say it's generational, but I think that definitely the imperialist policy. No, no, no. One thing, not generational, and that, that it transmits from generation to generation. To, that, that's what I meant. Well, I, in that sense, I'm not entirely sure if I agree, because the thing is, although the U.S. has, has for a very long time been a very violent society, mass shootings are pretty new historically. But I do think what is true is that definitely the the violence that's at the roots of U.S. politics, how normalized violence is in U.S. politics, I think that definitely plays a role. So, I mean, the fact that the U.S. government basically tells everyone the solution to all political problems is invading foreign countries and overthrowing their governments, I definitely think it's not a coincidence that that leads to more violent behavior among people who they see that their political leaders solve political solve problems with violence and they solve problems with violence. But it is also true. We should acknowledge that this epidemic of mass shootings is pretty new. And now in the sixties and seventies in the U S there was, there was a big problem with serial killers and now there are a lot of documentaries about all of these serial killers. And you could say that the, the modern day mass shooting, mass shooters kind of is like the current version of that, of like Ted Bundy and these crazy serial killers. But there's something going back 20 years to like Columbine, which is this famous shooting that kind of began like the, the, the epidemic of school shootings. And there's something about like, um, young people who are very, very often like, um, very lonely and internet culture plays a big role in it. And like these very atomized young people who are, are kind of just like lose their minds on the internet. And there's like this very strange phenomenon of these really angry, lonely, mostly young men who mm. shoot up their schools. And that's that. I don't think that's rooted necessarily in something historic. I think it's a pretty new phenomenon. Well, but as you said, as you said, I mean, they they grew up in a culture that doesn't that that blames something on the other and doesn't yeah. really uh, acknowledge life and as the value it has. And I I don't know how to say that. Well, and also I think that la vida no no tiene no tiene valor, o sea, yeah, life doesn't have value. Yeah. Well, I think that also if these people who do these kinds of shootings, I think if they had grown up in like you know. uh like West Asia or something, they would have joined Al Qaeda, right? But because they're in the U.S., they just like 
like that's the kind of social base of these people who like joined ISIS, right? It's the same kind of people. And they, in the U.S., they take that out by just like shooting up their, their classmates. And I definitely think that it's obviously it's something unique about the U.S. political culture because it doesn't happen in other countries, even in other countries, as my friend Rania Kalik often points out. I mean, she lives in Lebanon in Lebanon and Yemen and Iraq. Like there are guns everywhere and they don't have mass oh, shootings. Character. Yes. It's something I, unique I, about the, about U.S. politics and culture for sure. I started seeing it. Uh, I, I started the beginning. I seen um, the she does with Felix Biederman. Yeah, Felix. Yeah, that was that was a yeah. good discussion. Yeah, I, I haven't seen it. I, I will. I will. She makes me laugh so much. <laughs> <laughs> it's not a loss. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Celeste. Siempre es un gusto. Hasta pronto. Hasta pronto. Bueno. Eh, so now I'll take, um, well, I didn't realize there's three more callers. So um, I'm gonna, I will take the last three callers here, um, but unfortunately I'm not going to be able to take anyone else. So I will take these three and then I have to wrap up. So here's Ash. Go ahead, Ash. Regarding the Sri Lanka incident, I'm a bit confused. Like, I don't understand that many financial institutions, they are trying to hunt down Sri Lanka. They want the loans to be repaid. So that's why Sri Lanka defaulted on its loans. But I have this confusion that don't you think that the Rajapaksha family is involved in the corruption and because they mishandled the development programs of Sri Lanka, randomly building infrastructure without any planning, that's why Sri Lanka defaulted, like, I can understand that financial institutions can cause a lot of troubles for any country, even if a country is on the path of development. But in this case, don't you think the situation worsened because of the mismanagement of the Rajapaksha family? Like if I talk about the local news coverage in my country, Bangladesh, I have seen that Bangladesh gave loan to Sri Lanka two times. One was before this incident and another one was during this incident. And the thing that I'm really confused about is that there is a huge crowd stormed into the president's house. And the way they, I think they were smashing glasses and burning and all. I feel like there is genuine anger in Sri Lanka. Like, I understand that maybe some of the protesters are U.S. funded, maybe. But don't you feel like that there is some mismanagement on the part of the uh, Rajapaksha family, which infringed on Sri Lanka's democracy and didn't allow like free elections, like literally a huge part of Sri Lanka's parliament has all these family members from the same family. Don't you feel like it's suspicious? Definitely. I think people are absolutely right to be very angry. And I think one of the main reasons that people are so angry and these protests broke out is also simply there is a lack of food and fuel and medicine because the country has been unable to import those products. So that means that prices have gone up even further. I mean, there was 39% inflation in May alone. And also another factor, a very significant factor that I think is not getting enough coverage is that when Rajapaksa came in in 2019, he immediately cut taxes, including on big corporations, and he made religious organizations tax exempt. So he cut taxes, including VAT. He cut VAT taxes from 15 down to 8%. And then a month ago, 
the government reversed that and increased taxes, including increased VAT taxes. So while there's this massive uh, economic crisis and inflation and a lack of fuel and food and medicine, he increased taxes on average people, which obviously was a, another factor that just made people really angry. Now, there's definitely a lot of corruption. And I think, you know, the Sri Lankan government's pretty awful. And uh, if they if they can manage to deal with the corruption, that would be a positive step. Although, of course, there's been a lot of corruption for a long time. And there's a lot of corruption in many countries. But the the infrastructure projects is that's not why Sri Lanka is in so much debt. And this is what I was talking about earlier. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the loans that they were taking were not for infrastructure. It was just pure corruption. And it's and it's actually pretty similar. I mean, I was just talking to Sele, who's from Argentina, and it's pretty similar to what happened with Mauricio Macri, who was the former very um corrupt, you know, conservative oligarch president. And he took the largest IMF loan in history at fifty around fifty billion dollars and didn't do any infrastructure projects. So there's, I think definitely the, the corruption is a huge element of it. But the reason, I think, again, the reason that it really exploded in the way that it did is because inflation is so bad. There's a lack of food, fuel and food. And then their, their response was to increase taxes on people, which was just pouring fuel in the fire. Yeah, thanks for the clarification. Yeah, good question. Thank you. Um, all right, here's Amanda. Go ahead, Amanda. Hi. How you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I appreciate your discussions, um, and I, I enjoyed you on um, Revolutionary Tracks. That was a really nice discussion over there. Thanks. And um, I, 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 you've said a couple of things in, in a couple of your shows or elsewhere that I just thought were really helpful for me for framing things. But I have a question for you. So we, you were talking about like revolution and you were talking about that, that um, neoliberalism is not working and imperialism is not, you know, all of these, all of these things. One of the things that, that dropped into place for me, I think it was something you said, but maybe it was somebody else on revolutionary tracks about, about the fact that, um, sorry, I just totally lost my train of thought. The, um, and I wrote it down too. Um, oh, I know. MMT and neo, is neoliberalism an, a, an economic way of looking at things like MMT, like as opposed to MMT, or is the, yes. are those two separate categories of things? I'm, I'm kind of confused about definitions. Can yeah, you help very, out? very different. Yeah. I mean, sometimes people get confused by the term neoliberal because they think it means like, uh, like as in neoconservatism represents a certain kind of wave of like right wing pro war yeah. uh, figures. Neoliberalism refers to it an economic system, an economic ideology, a program in which the everything should be privatized. And basically, so it's the it's the economic uh. program of the IMF and the World Bank. And basically, it says that in order for your economy to grow, in order for your you know um, your uh, working people to have a better life, what you do is 
You want to privatize all state assets. You want to cut social spending. You want to leave everything to the free market. So it's basically free market economics. Going back to, you know, Ronald Reagan, the idea right. is that the, the government should only protect private property. It should not be involved in interfering in markets. It should not be spending money to, you know, uh, put, to invest in certain industries. It should only, you know, be there to act on, you know, on behalf of like protecting private property and let the free market operate. So, okay, so I see where my confusion came in. I really help, it really helps clarify it because I was kind of thinking neoliberalism was like kind of the, the opposite or mirror image of, of neoconservatives. So that's, that's extremely helpful for me to understand. I also yeah, think so it would be it, a, one, yeah, one second. Ahead. So yeah, it is, it. it can be confusing and, and I get why people are sometimes confused because Hillary Clinton, for example, is both neoliberal and neoconservative. In the sense that when people talk about neoconservatism, they're almost always referring to a foreign policy. And neoconservatives see the U.S. as this force for good in the world. And they believe that the solution to political problems is more military force showing muscle. They, they talk about a muscular foreign policy. So, you know, people who supported the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war and the, and the Libya war, those are neoconservatives. And neoliberalism is used to refer to an economic philosophy and an economic program. So in terms of Hillary Clinton's um, economic program, she's a neoliberal. In terms of her foreign policy, she's a neoconservative. And in fact, most U.S. politicians and most European politicians are neoconservatives and neoliberals. That's why it's confusing. Although outside of the U.S., liberal doesn't mean what it means in the U.S. That's why it's confusing. In many countries... The Liberal Party is the right wing party. And like we see this, for instance, in, in Australia, like the liberals are right wing or even in in Britain, like the, the Lib Dems, the Liberal Democrats are like center right. And in I mentioned Japan in Japan, the right wing party is called the Liberal Democratic Party. So it's only in the U.S. where liberals associated with like being on the left. But in fact, neoliberalism is reflecting the fact that it's economic liberalism, which is right-wing. Oh, wait, Amanda, I think, Amanda, I lost you there. Did you, was there something else you wanted to say? Sorry, uh, go ahead, Amanda. Oh, I was just going to say thank you. I really appreciate that clarification. I think it would be helpful for a lot of people to have some of these definitions more clearly elucidated because you you speak so clearly about things but there's like some basic 30,000 foot level stuff I mean I'm I, I follow government stuff granted not usually foreign policy stuff but I I'm pretty much a government groupie when it comes to stuff like c-span 2 you know <laughs> and uh -huh. and these are things that are not clear to me that that the people having these discussions even at the at the level where our leaders are or, or people like you and journalists, all, all these people are, are assuming that, that people understand when you say left, this is what you mean. When you say liberal, this is, you know what I mean? Just yeah. an observation. You're not going to fix it by yourself. But I think if we all kind of work together, we might get a better idea of what we're talking about together. No, that's, that's actually a really good suggestion. And that's something I'm going to be um, more conscious of in the future, especially when it comes to terms like that you know, like liberal, neoliberal that could be confusing to people.
So thanks. Well, thank you. Very much appreciate it to you too. Have a great day. (laughs) You too. My pleasure. All right, cool. Perfect. Uh, I'm going to end here with Rudy. So, hey, Rudy, what's up? Hola, Benjamin. Como va? (laughs) Todo bien. How's it going? (laughs) Good. Um, I just wanted to touch on something that you guys were saying and ask you a question. Um, So, you guys were talking about, um, um, I believe, France, right? And it's sort of, um, it's wheat. And I was um, listening to Mélenchon um, speak about a week ago. And he was basically saying how he thinks that France should, you know, get a little bit closer to Algeria, get the Algerian oil in exchange for the French produce. Um, So that was one thing. And then I remember when I was in Spain, I thought it was strange, but somebody was telling me that they got like their fruits from Costa Rica and they sold their fruits in Spain to like France crazy and then so like my last question was my question was um you know the the whole sanctions thing and the issues that is creating with agriculture um i'm wondering have you seen in latin america sort of um as a sort of positive result of the sanctions and not being able to export things in have you seen um, people basically asking for the development of, you know, local crops. And I saw, I saw that that's sort of one of the things that's being dealt with in Africa. People are like, okay, well, we have a lot of these local things that we could be growing, but we've always imported, um, you know, wheat from elsewhere. How about we just don't face this thing again and just like improve our agriculture? So that's it. Thanks, man. Yeah, well, this is a great question. And, I think that it's true that although the Western sanctions on Russia over the Ukraine war are causing a real economic crisis around the world that is going to be very painful, especially for the African continent, one of the very few silver linings, one of the very few good things is that more countries are talking about the idea of food sovereignty. And they're saying like, wait, why are we producing all this food and then exporting it to other countries? And then our people don't have that food. And this is making countries rethink exactly those neoliberal policies I was just talking about, where basically for decades, especially since the 1990s, most countries around the world have implemented this kind of neoliberal economic model based on this concept of neoliberal globalization, where every country gets rid of its trade barriers and allows the free market to operate. And what that means is that, you know, you were talking about, for instance, like France, uh, getting oil from Algeria and then um, getting fruit from Costa Rica. Well, if if you have farmers in Latin America who are producing fruit in a much you know more temperate climate where it's easier to to grow fruit, but those farmers are only paid you know a few dollars a day compared to a French farmer, then obviously if you just operate on the free market, then Latin American fruit is going to be much much cheaper, which is how you can keep bananas as cheap as they are. Bananas are insanely cheap in in many Western countries because they come from, you know, countries in in Latin America where wages are are depressed and kept down to keep those those goods very cheap. But if France decides that they want to encourage domestic agricultural production, the government can say, we're going to tax the import of fruit from other countries 
we're going to subsidize the production of fruit here in France. And then it becomes much more competitive for French fruit. I mean, if they can produce, I don't know what kind of fruit, I think apples maybe, but I know the climate's not super good for fruit, but you know, they do produce a lot of wheat and I know definitely wine. So I'm guessing grapes. But anyway, the point is, I I was just trying to confirm that I meant like that imported fruit from uh, Costa Rica and it sold its fruit to, um, to Spain, uh, rather to um, France. And I didn't understand why one would import fruit and then sell its fruits to another country. But like well, now I Yeah, exactly, because it's based on the free market. And, and, and this is what um, Sele from Argentina was saying earlier. So in Argentina, it's known for having really good beef. And because of this neoliberal economic model where the government's not allowed to interview, interfere in the economy, it has to all be the free market. What that means is that Argentine beef because it has a, a reputation for being very good, and it is very good quality meat, then what that means is that on the international market, it's much more expensive. So an Argentine farmer can export beef for a higher price than they can sell it locally. So if you're, in, if you're a local in Argentina and you want to buy local beef, it's going to be more expensive because the farmer could just export that and sell it for a higher price unless the government interfe- intervenes and says, look, we're going to subsidize this or we're going to put a tax on the import of foreign meat in order to, to, to promote the local Argentine beef industry. So what we're seeing now with the sanctions is that countries are being forced to once again engage in protectionism. Instead of these neoliberal policies, the government is saying we're going to encourage domestic production of food. And, and in fact, right after the the beginning of the war in February, when, well, at least this new phase of the war, which has gone on since 2014, and then when the West imposed sanctions on Russia, Kazakhstan, the leader of Kazakhstan, Nazarbayev, gave a speech in which he said that we're going to have to be more food independent and more food secure, recognizing that because uh, Kazakhstan has close economic ties to Russia, that they were going to be hurt by the sanctions. So a lot of leaders around the world are saying that now. They're saying, for 30 years, based on this neoliberal model, we've all like, we basically destroyed our economic sovereignty and based everything on imports. And now we need to find import substitutions. So in the short term, it's going to be very bad for a lot of countries that are, that are struggling with, with getting enough food and fuel. But I do think that in the long term, it is going to bring the world back to a better balance where countries are able to have more domestic production and don't just rely on cheap imports for everything. Well, so gracias, Ben. I just want to say that it sounds like well, the CIA is going to be stretched really, really thin. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean, they've, they failed in Bolivia in, in 2019. They have, they failed in, in Nicaragua in 2018. They failed in Venezuela in 2019 and it's going on. They, uh, failed in Colombia. Now we'll see, well, we'll see how that goes in Colombia and in other countries too. So, yeah, I mean, you, you, can, you can't, you can't maintain <laughs> these policies forever. People have a memory and people know their history. So I do they'll think have, that times are changing. They'll have okay. to hire more, um, Latina mothers who have, um, you know, depression and you, you remember that, um, CIA uh, propaganda? Oh God. Yeah, the CIA <laughs> intersectional feminist ad. That was that was bad. Right. Thanks, man. Have yours. Thanks.
No, I appreciate it. Um, cool. Well, that we had a great chat today. I always love having these discussions. There, it was very lively, good variety of, of discussion, a uh, good variety of questions. And I always love having people on different continents. We had someone from Argentina, someone from, from uh, Bangladesh, someone I think from the US, but also who is from Spain. So good, good, just good chat. As always, this episode will be available after the fact on um, Spotify and iTunes. So if you just look up this podcast, um, of course, though, if you do want to participate in the discussion and ask questions, you can only do that here at Colin. So I will be doing another one of these this week. I think it'll probably be Thursday, maybe Friday. If you check out my Twitter, I will post that link. So definitely keep an eye out and I'll see you all next time. Thanks a lot for listening.